Have you ever wondered, what's the deal with the Nobel Prizes? Who are all these people? And why should I care? I'm Maggie. And I'm Quinn. And this is Nobelis Oblige, the podcast where we rank and review all the Nobel laureates from 1901 until we run out of people. Join us as we make our way through some of the most influential scientists, writers, and leaders of the 20th and 21st centuries. In the process, we'll explore their work, their impact on society, their personal lives, and more. And, most importantly, we'll see if they have that erudite mystique, that academic rigor, that sense of Nobel S.O.B.L.E.G.E. passing judgment on all of the kings and emperors of France from Clovis to Napoleon III. Who will be selected as the creme de la creme and who will be sent to the guillotine? Je m'appelle Ben Clark. And I'm Eliza Summers. When you finish, I just like, when you said your first bit, I like paused and I was like, okay, right, I'm meant to speak. Yeah, I thought the lag was just a lot and Eliza's got an ice pack. Yeah, I have an ice pack because the things I do for you listeners is that I um, put an ice pack on because I have to have my fan off so you won't hear it. Yeah, so if you hear a rustling, that's Eliza's ice pack. And if you hear a slurping, that's me with tea because I'm cold. <laughs> um, so opposite ends. I'm shivering in an attic in the Southern Hemisphere and Eliza is just melting, melting in an apartment in Japan. All right. It's so um, humid here, so that adds like 10 degrees immediately. Yeah. So we recorded Eleanor of Aquitaine this morning, or I guess this af- earlier this afternoon, and now it's evening okay. and we're doing, now that it's, because it's Her fresh husband. in our mind and because we need to record as many episodes as we can before I go on my trip, we are doing Louis the Seventh. Um, yes. I should have made you say it. <laughs> Which reminds me, I'll need a whisper saying Eleanor and um, Louis. Oh, yeah. We'll do that at the end, though. Remind me to do it at the end. Actually, I'll make a note at the end of my notes so we don't forget. I'll write it down as well. One of us will remember. (laughs) I put the note, I just wrote it on a piece of paper and put it, and I'm not closing it, the little book, my notebook. So hopefully I'll see it. All right. So Eleanor of Aquitaine's episode, fresh in our minds, and... um, I was drinking coffee during that mm. episode, but I'm drink- I'm drinking tea during this episode, which I think suits the vibe. Eleanor is very coffee vibes and Louis is very tea vibes, I feel. Just, yeah, well, for me to that. have coffee, it says I'm tired. I nearly fell asleep when we took our break between Eleanor and now. I was like lying on my bed and I feel my eyes closing. I was like, no. Nah. And luckily there's a vending machine outside my apartment that has coffee. So I could just that vending machine has coffee. everything. <laughs> It really does. It is. Tea, milk, coffee, some soft drinks, you know. Do you think you're going to fall asleep during this episode because Louis is so boring? No, because I'm on caffeine. Uh, but you should have said because Louis is not boring because he's often seen as a boring man, but his life is actually quite interesting. So we'll get into it. My catchphrase. Well, I don't even see him as boring because I don't really know anything about him as much. Like, you know, I always just, he's always overshadowed by his wife. Yes. Well, I'll get you to I'll get you to recap everything that that we've said about 
Louis, okay. in just a moment. But first, let's start, let's start way back with his birth, two to four years before mm-hmm. Eleanor in 1120. Um, okay. And he was the second of mm-hmm. seven sons of King Louis VI of France mm-hmm. and his wife Adelaide of Maurienne of the House of Savoy. I was going to say, it's nice to see someone marry, like, similar ages to them, because usually it's always such a big age difference, I feel. Like, the previous marriages we were talking about. Yeah, to well, they were they were both too young to get married in that <laughs> in that case. Yeah, but, like, you know, at least it's not, like, 40-year-old. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's preferable. Like it's still messed up, but it's preferable. So, Louis was sent to the church at a young age, because he was the second son, and he was expected to you know, become like a senior bishop or something. But then his elder brother, Philip. A pig killed him. Yes, because his horse tripped over a pig and he got his head smashed against a rock. So that (laughs) happened in 1131 when Louis Mm. was 11 years old. And that same year, Louis was anointed and crowned junior king, as his brother had been, in Rams Cathedral. Um, But his ailing father, who was a bit of a bit of a micromanager, uh, didn't like to give away much power and authority, didn't give him any responsibilities mm. for the next six or so years. That's the thing. The fathers even, they give like too much and the son kind of takes over or they don't give them anything. So the son's like usually finds it really hard to rule. Yeah, that is, it is definitely the latter case. But you know, this is fine for Louis. Louis was very content to spend his days in the Abbey of Saint-Denis, under the tutelage of his mentor and his father's best friend, Abbot Suger. But then, in 1137, as his father is about to die, we have Eleanor of Aquitaine's father also dying, Eleanor being left with Aquitaine, Mm. and she and Louis getting married, because we've got two young people, single. Why not marry them together? Marry them together, (laughs) join up the kingdom of France with the most powerful vassal in France, which is Aquitaine. So then what happens? Uh, We've pretty much gone through the whole first half of Louis' life in Eleanor of Aquitaine's episode, which I did on purpose. So would you like to recap recap? (laughs) Okay, so they get married. So basically a week after they're, what, like crowned junior kings, the king dies and suddenly, yep. yay, they're ruling. Yes. So they're ruling, you know, having a little bump along the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they go to Paris and Eleanor's like, oh, it's back order. <laughs> and Louis's like, it's great. We can pray here. It's not meant to be fun. So then they, she has them wrapped around her finger and like, you yep. know, for quite a while. And then eventually, you know, little things happen here and there. And then there's some burning of the whole entire town. And then Louis's like, <laughs> okay, let's go on another crusade. Because he felt and bad Eleanor's about the town. And Eleanor's like, I'm yeah. coming too. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, okay. And they're along the way. Oh, and before that, they had a kid just like right before. And then was a daughter. Anyway, they're a daughter, yeah. They're along the way. They're going through the crusades and it's not a great time. They're just... <laughs> It's, you know, it's that test of a relationship when you go on a crusade together. Can you make it or not? <laughs> Their relationship really deteriorated. It just, it crumbled like the city of Odessa. Yes. Is that it? That was it was Ed- Edessa, not Odessa, but yeah. Ed- oh, Edessa. Anyway, <laughs> it crumbled like that. And then 
eventually kind of as to be expected because there's now more than one well there's the third crusade later on that second one failed yeah so they go back and along the way they stop at rome and they're like hating each other and the pope's like pushes them in a room chucks some flowers <laughs> at him and is like make a baby because <laughs> louis a bit like mm, no you know but he does make was a like, baby. i just want a divorce yeah. But they make a baby and eventually they return and then the baby's born. It's another girl. So they're like, mm. And Eleanor's <laughs> like, please just let me divorce you. And he's like, mm, yeah, I agree. Let's separate. But I'll that still was... keep our children legitimate because, yeah, I and then, won't and make then, them bastards and by then being what a did, bastard. And then what did Eleanor do? We'll be right back after this. The commander said, don't worry, I don't have the authority to kill you today. Which was positive, for that day anyway. In 1993, Chris Moon was captured by the Khmer Rouge while clearing landmines in Cambodia. With survival probability low, Chris was brought in front of the boss. He was just given a local nickname, Mr. Clever. Hi, I'm Steve Windus, host of the Batting the Breeze podcast. I'd love you to check out how Chris survived, along with some other great human stories at battingthebreeze.com. Hopefully see you there. Then Eleanor, she went off and she's like, okay, I'm going to live a better life. I'm going to marry another king. Mm-hmm. But was it really a better life? Who knows? You find out by listening to the episode on her. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> then while that's going on, Louis like, okay, I've got two daughters, but I have no son. What will happen? Will he have a son? <laughs> Who knows? Find out this episode. Wow. Okay, Boom. well, that was really good, actually. <laughs> I know. I felt like I was in Olaf. I was like Olaf in Frozen Two when he does a recap. <laughs> it was <laughs> that very scene. I was like, I'm, I'm, I was channeling Look, my inner Olaf. You hit on basically all of the most important details, which is pretty good. Um, Thank you. Why? What did I miss? Um. Oh, you you left out some details, like the fact that. Eleanor was rumoured to be sleeping with her uncle during the crusade. Yeah, but you, I was uh, focusing more on Louis. Cause yeah, yeah. Louis. It's not necessarily relevant. But, okay, that was good. It was very good. Gave relationship advice as well. One thing you got wrong, the guy that Eleanor marries, Henry II of England, he's not the King of England yet. He won't be Oh, yeah, at the years. time. So in the meantime, yeah. we're still dealing with the last couple of years of the English of anarchy. The anarchy, yeah. Yeah, which is the first yeah. thing that Louis sort of deals with when he gets back and he's done his divorce and everything. Mm. So Louis the seventh, uh, made a sort of last ditch alliance with King Stephen, the arch enemy mm. of Henry and his mother, Empress Matilda, because, you know, he, he. he's, he's mad at Henry for, you know, for marrying taking, his ex-wife. His wife. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, Stephen at this point has been on the throne for 15 years, but they have not been happy years because of the anarchy yeah, that's raging fighting. because Matilda's trying to get the throne. The sun's dying, you know, it's not yeah. that great. But at this point, like, Empress Matilda's not trying to get the throne anymore. Henry's, like, now the candidate because yeah. he's, he's an Well, adult. she's kind of like, you know, she's like, oh, you know, he'll yeah. become it anyway. So Louis's come, coming to help Stephen and uh, it's mm. not gonna, obviously not going to turn out well. So <laughs> Louis invaded Normandy alongside Stephen's mm. son, Eustace. And oh, what do we I know? Like that ha- name, Eustace. But what do we know happens to Eustace? 
Stephen's son. It doesn't end well for him. Nope. He, he, what, does he fall off a horse? No, he dies in battle while trying to conquer Normandy with Louis. Probably on a horse. Yeah. Um, so that plan fails because now the heir's dead and Stephen basically gives up the war and yeah, just says, fine, Henry can be the heir. It's fine. He's sort of lost the will. Let me live out my reigning days. Sort of lost the will to live. His wife, Matilda of Boulogne, had also died around that time. So yeah, yeah. it wasn't it wasn't a good time. Double whammy. Yeah. Meanwhile, also someone who died was Tybalt the Great, the, the Count of Blois okay. and Champagne. He also died in 1152. And he divided his lands between his teenage sons, mm. Count Henry of Champagne, Count Tybalt the V of Blois, and Count Stephen of Sancerre. So that's a three-way mm. split of the Blois. Mm. So in light of these events, uh, Louis VII decided to look further than England for a good ally against the juggernaut that Henry II of England and Eleanor of Aquitaine had suddenly become. So he's looking for an alliance marriage? Yeah. I need to share with you a map of the Angevin Empire just to show you how bad things are in terms of uh, okay. the map. Put the rest okay. of the images in the drive. Oh, it's going to take a while, isn't it? Oh, no, it's nearly hmm. there. All I'm thinking is probably my head is SpongeBob, but they were like five years later. Five <laughs> years later. Okay, so okay. looking at this map, all of the red stuff is Eleanor and Henry's. Eleanor's the more pinkish red, and Henry is the darker oh, yeah. red. The blue is Louis, and the green is all of Louis's other vassals. Mm. So as you can see, <laughs> mm. it's not looking good. A nice chunk. <laughs> oh, I didn't realize it's even smaller because the Roman Empire. Yeah, the Holy Roman Empire gets into a bit of modern day France. Well, someone's not happy. Sloney! Sloane! Uh, yeah, just yes. ignore him. So, yes, you've seen the map. <laughs> yeah. It's not a... great. <laughs> this is what happens when yeah. Eleanor marries Henry. Yeah. Henry takes the English throne a couple years later. And why is the... It's striped. Well, Brittany gets taken over later by the Angevin Empire. Um, um, that's Brittany. Um, yeah. But, yes. This will be mm, on the WordPress. But uh, yes, so Henry and Eleanor, big juggernaut that's just taking up most of France. Um, still yeah. still theoretically loyal to the French king as, as vassal for their <laughs> lands in France, but in practice, really? not on. really. Yeah. But speaking of juggernauts, meanwhile, in Germany, the Holy Roman Empire, the, there's a new emperor whose name is Frederick Barbarossa. Mm. Don't know if you've heard of I him. I like that name. But he's a big deal. It means Frederick Redbeard. Yeah, I have. Yeah. But I don't really know anything. I just heard the name. Yeah. So he will be a big deal, mainly next episode, because he lives a while. Okay. Um, but the important thing for us in France to know is that he's a really good emperor. He's an amazing emperor. The best since, like, mm. Otto the Great. Maybe even best oh, since damn. Charlemagne. Um, but he's But he's a giant asshole to the Pope. And the Pope is a giant asshole to him. So. Are they assholes to France, though? That's the not really. Like I guess Fran- I'll find out. Well, yeah. France gets involved in this at certain points, but France consistently takes the Pope's side, as we've seen. Yeah. So in 1154, uh, the same year as King Stephen's of England's death, Louis VII finalized negotiations with Alfonso VII, King of Castile and Leon, 
to marry his Ooh. daughter, Constance. Oh. Yes. So the choice of Constance after the divorce with Eleanor is slightly ironic, given that Louis and Constance were more cr- closely related. And the whole reason they'd been able to get divorced was because they were too closely related. So he's basically gone right. from like divorcing a fourth cousin to marrying a third cousin. <laughs> what was the relations between Eleanor and Henry? I assume there were some. Um, it was through uh, uh, Hugh Capet married an Aquitanian princess. That's how they related. Oh, okay. So Not it's back a bit. Yeah, yeah. Whereas I think Constance's mother was from the Capetian house of Burgundy, which are like, oh, okay. you know, second cousins. Yeah. So they're yeah. like third, they're like third cousins. But, you know, people just ignore it. <laughs> People just ignore count consanguinity until it actually becomes a problem. Um, what are you doing, Slay? Looking a bit anxious. Good. Sit on the bed. Good girl. Just sit there. Just be happy. Where am I? Oh yeah, Constance. So um, Constance has the honor of being France's first Spanish queen since. Ooh. Brunhilde, although we really didn't count Brunhilde as Counter, yeah. as either Spanish or the Queen of France, because um, she was Visigothic, I guess. But they're all sort of the same. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's neat. Mm. Uh, yeah, it is, and it's like an indication of how powerful the Spanish are becoming. Um, yeah, they've sort of the Reconqui- the Reconquistas sort of gotten off the ground. They're getting more land and wealth. Mm. Yeah. So they're becoming valuable allies, and it's good to have them down, you know, near the Aquitanian border. Kind of borders, sort of keep, yeah. Keep them in check, yeah. Um, Smart. Little is known about Constance, who was somewhere between 15 and 20 when the marriage contract was signed. It so probably took her a while. What, early 30s? Yeah, yeah, about that. Um, and it probably took her a while to get to France. And it probably took even longer for Louis to finally get her pregnant, <laughs> knowing Louis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's like, no, it's a sin. It's like, you're married to her. No, it's still a sin. It doesn't make sense. So like, this is your second wife. It's yes. like, how did the first one turn out? <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but they seem to have gotten along a bit better. I think Constance was maybe a bit more quiet and less outspoken. And she was in a foreign Eleanor, place. Helped. You know, yeah, she yeah. didn't have that power influence that Eleanor yeah. had. So in 1157, Constance gave birth to... A girl. A girl named Margaret. It's always a girl. A lovely girl, but <laughs> alas, not what Louis was looking for. <laughs> Feels like it's gonna be, it's, he's going to be one of those ones where it's like the last kid will be a boy or something. And it'll have like all these girls. To make matters worse, uh, Louis VII is immediately forced to betroth his daughter to Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine's Oh. Newly born son, Henry the Young King, or he will become Henry. Why the is Young he forced? King. Because um, things are pretty dire with the Angevin Empire, which has started expanding into Brittany and is also thinking uh, of conquering Toulouse at this time. Uh, yeah. So he's trying to like mitigate Make them the a bit by yeah through marriage alliance, appeasing them, appeasing them basically. Yeah, um, actually, it's uh, Thomas Becket. Uh, Henry II of England's Chancellor, um, who comes to France in 1157 and persuades Louis to sign this marriage contract. So oh. Thomas Becket is very, 
he basically just annoys people until they do what he wants, is, is what Beckett does. <laughs> <laughs> Which is quite effective in this case. Won't be so effective when he gets on the bad he side in the second. <laughs> but we'll see. So, yeah, that marriage is not going to happen for a while because both children okay. are uh, children. But it will eventually happen. Yes. Silly dies. Silly dies. Uh, also, the, the other daughters, um, Marie and Alix, who are the daughters yep. of Eleanor and Louis, they are still of slightly sort of iffy legitimacy due to their parents' divorce. Mm. Um, yeah. They were declared legitimate, but people could definitely dispute this if there ever, if any kind of succession question came up. Oh, okay. On top of that, Margaret, little Margaret, uh, mm. was made Countess of the Vexan as her dowry to oh. England. Oh, damn. So they're marrying her to the heir of England and making sure that the Vexan is part of that dowry. Um, which, that means Louis Seventh has, has lost the Vexan. Yeah, it's not good. Yeah, it's not good. Where is the Vexan again? Um, Vexan is just north of Paris, between Paris and Normandy. Oh, that, oh yeah. Not all of Louis's political decisions in this period were bad, though. After mm. this, we get Louis intervening in Toulouse, good. which is quite good. He doesn't lose that. If he did, it'd be like, oh no, you're stuffed, basically. Because if he lost Toulouse, damn, he would have like nothing. Well, he'd have a bit, but you know. So yeah, this is in 1159. Louis goes down to aid Count Raymond of Toulouse against Henry II, who is trying to press Eleanor's ancestral claim to Toulouse which would give them Mm. the entire south of France on top of everything else. So yeah, Louis helps. It's unclear as to how helpful he was, uh, (laughs) or if, you know, it was just a mission that was doomed to fail. But he did help, and, and, you know, he won. Also in Mm. 1159, while he's in the south, Louis VII sides with Pope Alexander III in a new phase Mm. of the investiture crisis, this time against... Frederick Barbarossa. Frederick Barbarossa, he's backing an anti-pope, he's threatening the French border, trying to invade Provence, and he's also trying to invade Italy. So oh, he's got his finger in lots of pies. He does a lot. It does Frederick. So Louis shelters the Pope twice um, on two different occasions in the city of Sens, for which mm. Pope Alexander gifts Louis VII with a golden rose. Which I didn't oh. know this was a thing, but a golden rose is like a a gesture of the Pope towards like a figure that he thinks is like good. <laughs> like very good. Yeah. And it still happens to this day. The Pope will give golden roses and they, Aww. and there's like these vases of golden roses and they're, they're always different than they're like oh, literally gold roses. Which I didn't, I didn't know it was a thing, but apparently it's a thing that dates back to the middle ages where the Pope will give I'm people he thinks golden are cool roses, Pope. golden roses. Yeah. This is what they look like. Literally did not know about that until yeah. researching Louis VII. Oh, they're nice. Mm. Ooh. I know. They're so cool. The last time someone got a rose was last year. Oh, who got oh, a rose? Which is Basilica of Lady of Sorrows in Slovakia. Oh, it was a, um, sounds like a convent or something. Yeah. Okay. The last time it was like a person was like 1956. Charlotte, Grand Duchess of Luxembourg. Oh, okay. So it's like a it's like a person or a place can be given to. Yeah. Anything so that's been a while, oh, quite a while. I wonder if he's ever given it to like. <laughs> no, but he's mainly seems to give it to women. Oh, you can give it to a state. 
Oh, a couple can get it. Getting off that tangent. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, I googled. So Louis the Seventh gets a golden rose, and this solidifies his reputation as a darling of the Catholic Church. Even English chroniclers describe Louis as Rex Christianissimus, which means the most Christian king, <laughs> which will come in handy when Thomas Becket comes to his court once again, um, this time as the exiled Archbishop of Canterbury. <laughs> the Pope, so the Pope really liked Louis. He didn't support Louis with everything. While in France, he mainly worked to keep the peace between Louis and Henry II of England. Um, that became his job. Um, and he tried not to make it look like he was playing favorites. So (laughs) not being Eleanor. Yeah. It was basically, yeah. Keeping the peace. Meanwhile, back to Queen Constance in Paris. So, you know, Louis goes back to Paris. He has another go at having a son. How does that turn out? So in 1160, she manages to conceive again and she gives birth. Yay. Once again to a girl. A fourth daughter named Alice. (laughs) To make matters worse, Constance died in childbirth. Oh. Yeah. I just realized something though. All the kids' names so far uh, begin with M or A. It's M A M A. Marie, Alix, Margaret, Alice. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. That's sad that she died in childbirth. It's so common. Their names spell Mama. Mama. (laughs) <laughs> but yes, uh, Constance sadly dies in childbirth, giving birth mm. to How old was she? Just she would have been early 20s. Young. Yeah, early really 20s. So Louis sank into a deep depression after this. He'd yeah. actually really liked Constance. Oh, They'd just been a good fit, you know? And it was just very sad mm. that, that it ended this way. Yeah. Louis would have been happy just to, like, be a monk king, never marry again. Yeah. But his nobles pressured him. Uh, to so he remarry. wasn't like Henry being like, I need a son. No, no. Henry the um, Eighth, I mean. I mean, maybe a little bit, but also equally Probably. wasn't too into women in general. So, yeah. so just five weeks after Constance's death, Louis was pressured into marrying none <laughs> other than Adela of Champagne. It hadn't even been two months. So Adela of Champagne was the 20-year-old eldest daughter of Tybalt the Great. Of the House of Bois. So she's oh, the okay. sister of the current counts of Champagne, Bois, and Sansa. Oh. Yeah. As oh. well as she has a couple other brothers who are prominent clerics. Oh. She's 20 years old. She's ready for it. <laughs> this alliance was further solidified when Louis VII married his two elder daughters, Mary and Alex, to the counts of Champagne and Bois, respectively. Oh. So that means now that... His daughter, but also his sister-in-law. Yeah. And slash daughters. And each other's sisters-in-law slash sisters. Sisters-in-law slash mother for Adela, though. She's a mother. Stepmother, but then. Yeah, she's their their stepmother and sister-in-law, yeah. And sister-in-law. Damn. Really came it close. They're really tying up those knots because the Mm. Bois family are their most, you know, have been their historical rivals. Of the of House mm. Cafe, but now they really need to like bond together against yeah. this, this menace it's... of of the Angevin Empire. How old's Louis at this point? Louis'd be like late thirties at this point, I think. It's oh, okay. uh eleven sixty. And he was born eleven twenty. So he'd be forty. Forty years oh, old. Okay. And she's twenty. So, as Queen, Adela had her work cut out for her. 
On top of having Mm. the burden of mending the conflict between her house and the crown, which had been raging since the reign of Hugh Capet, pretty much, um, Mm. she also had the pressure of bearing a son for a man who just wanted everyone to leave him alone to pray, um, Mm. who already hated sex, (laughs) and who was obsessed with mourning his dead wife, Constance. Well, yeah, it was five weeks ago. Exactly. (laughs) But Adela, she she grit her teeth and she got to work, slowly seducing the king. <laughs> oh, melting his heart. And she eventually, eventually Succeeds. got Louis to get over himself. How long does this eventually take? Five years. Ooh, wow, yeah. she was patient. He she was, was like, I'm patient. waiting. Like, I'm in it for the long haul. I'll wait. You know, she couldn't throw a tantrum like Eleanor and leave. Like, she, her family was counting on yeah. her. On the 22nd of August, 1165, Adela of Champagne successfully gave birth to her first child and Louis' fifth child. A girl? A boy! Named Philip. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. Louis even used the remaining crumbs of his sexual prowess to have a second child with Adela. Oh, damn. I thought he would just be like, nah. Yeah, they had another, they had another daughter six years later named Agnes. Another A. 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 Yeah. Philip ruins it. Yeah, now it's Finally mum- he was an, an M. Now it's Mamapa. <laughs> Mamapa. 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 Um Mama. Yeah, I think at that point Louis pretty much shrugged and was like, let's just hope Philip doesn't die. <laughs> just don't get on. Let's horses. hope it's it doesn't <laughs> yeah, it doesn't don't go near pigs or get on horses. Let's not have yeah. what his father like his brother his uncle died. but yes philip survives um which is a good thing because he will yes. go on to be called philip augustus mm. and be an interesting very good <laughs> king um depending yeah. on how you look at it he was also you know a bit of an asshole but whatever they all were yeah. um so more on that next episode. Can you really but, uh, be a king without being a bit of an asshole sometimes? Exactly. That's why we guillotine them. Because we're like, they all deserve it. Mm. So at the time of his birth, Philip Augustus was called Philippe Dieudonnet, which means Philip the God-given, because his father mm. had prayed for him for so long. And he was healthy. And he was healthy. Wasn't like Henry VIII and his sickly son. So back when Adela was about a month pregnant uh, with Philip, however... None other than mm. Thomas Becket, now Archbishop of Canterbury, Ooh. basically yeeted himself across the English Channel to the French court Ooh. and oh. begs for Louis the Seventh to shelter him because he's in big trouble. Yeah. Henry's not happy. Henry's not happy. So Becket has had, let's call them creative differences with Henry the Second of England. <laughs> basically, here's the here's the very short summary of this. Um, yeah. He started out as a really good chancellor for Henry, like as not, yeah, yeah like a minor priest, yeah. chan- like worked his way yeah. up the ranks and was chancellor. Yeah. As we said, he was very skilled at annoying people until they did, you know, the king mm-hmm. wanted them to do. So Henry thought it'd be an excellent idea to appoint him as the most powerful bishop in England, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, and then he could, and, you but know, then he got paid. help. He could reform the church to make it more sort of king controlled. However, as soon as the big old bishop hat was put on his head, Beckett's allegiance completely shifted from Henry II to the Pope. To the church. To the church. Oh, yeah. And suddenly Henry II was the one 
he was annoying until he got his way. Henry's like, I made you in power. I'm not happy. But if you know one thing about Henry II, it's that he was very stubborn and easily angered. (laughs) (laughs) So it's basically the immovable object meeting the irresistible force as he's trying to get stuff from Beckett. Beckett's trying to get stuff from him and they're just not cooperating. Um, They're just not moving. Yes. So this explodes into a kerfuffle of such proportions that it leads Thomas Beckett to vacate to flee. England to flee. So Beckett spent five to six years in exile at mm. Pontigny Abbey and Louis VII finally seeing an opportunity to do a lot of damage to the Angevin <laughs> Empire, milked the hell out of it. Oh yeah, I would. Okay, can I can just imagine him like you know when some like a friend gets a new friend and you're just like, and I can just imagine them kind of like walking along like down the street yeah. and they see Henry and like this is modern times, and Louis just looking like super triumphant like oh, yeah. mine now. Yeah, and he's like, I want you back. Or it's like your two like ex girlfriends or boyfriends like become friends. Yeah, and then they like mock you. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, it's that. Um, So, yes, he was very, uh, Louis was very smug that the prime cleric of England was under his protection. Yeah, milk that. He and Beckett then conspired to get Henry II of England (gasps) excommunicated. (laughs) However, Pope Alexander, as we've seen, was not very into playing favourites and punishing England. So... Yeah, he kind of put the kibosh on that plan and was like, no, go back, make friends, behave. And Thomas (laughs) was like, do I have to? Basically. So at this point in in whatever book I was reading, I read that Louis got assassinated. Not the case. (laughs) Beckett got assassinated. (laughs) So Thomas Beckett. He got assassinated, but then he was still king. Yeah, no, I I saw the word assassinated and I was like, oh, and I was like, oh, no, it's not Louis. It's uh, it's Beckett. So, so Beckett, you know, he made friends with, with Henry, but as soon as he got back to England, he went back to his annoying ways. And, um... But yes, he was dying. He was like, why did I listen to the Pope? I should have stayed with Louis, is probably Thomas's yeah. thoughts. So at some point, Henry said something to someone who told someone else in a way mm. that... Made it seem Ooh. like he wanted somebody yeah. to kill through Thomas the grapevine. Through the grapevine. So Whispers. these random four knights, they show up at Canterbury like, Cathedral. They kill Thomas Beckett. Stabity stab. They stomp on his brains, and Ew. you know they I'm just trying to clean leave him for dead. Off your foot. Yeah, it's not nice. Yeah. Um, and these four knights, of course, were claiming to be acting on the orders of Henry the Second, who. Knew nothing about it. Or so he said. <laughs> Let's be generous. Let's say he knew nothing about it. Either way, he got the blame for it. So back in France, Louis VII, of course, joined the church in making a huge deal out of this and milking it for all it was worth. Yeah. So Pope Alexander III had made it back to Rome at this point because Emperor Frederick had backed off a little bit. He'd been forced yeah. out of Italy. And the newly empowered Pope looked ready to excommunicate the King of England, finally. Oh, yeah, he would not have been happy. He's like, I ordered you guys to make peace, and now that I hear he's dead? Yeah. And what? Louis's like, we, I've, 
we had two kings get excommunicated for way less than this. <laughs> yeah, why have you not <laughs> sent out that notice yet? Yeah. yeah He's like, I've of- got the messenger at the ready. <laughs> all you need, I've got the papers. All you need to do is sign it and the messenger Just can go. Excommunicated. Also, at this point, we have Eleanor of Aquitaine supporting her son's rebellions. <laughs> and her and Louis suddenly being on the same side again and cooperating. <laughs> so the combined force of his son's rebellion, Louis's meddling, and the threat of excommunication eventually forced Henry II to do a walk of shame. <laughs> I'm imagining, you know, the nun is ringing the bell saying shame. Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah, Game yeah. of Thrones. Then he, he, he did the walk of shame to Canterbury Cathedral, where he prostrated in the spot where Beckett had been slain. Hopefully they cleaned up the brains by this point. Yeah. Actually, I kind of hope they didn't clean up the brain, so then he'd feel even worse. Uh, they rubbed his face in it. Ugh, gross. <laughs> Disgusting. Um, uh, let's hope they, they spared him that, because uh, he was also being whipped by local mon- monks while this was happening. Oh. Imagine being the, the monk who's given the task to whip Whipping the king. Whipping the king. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, do I go hard? Like, do I whip it? Or am I doing a light whip? Oh, God. Will I be yeah. punished for doing a light whip? Or will I be punished for making it too hard and hurting the king too <laughs> yeah. much? It would be like that dilemma for that monk. So this happened in July 1174, and it prevented Henry from getting excommunicated because he was mm. showing penitence. Um. He also pledged to punish Beckett's killers, although they disappeared mm. and run off at this point long ago. Yeah. And he also pledged to go on a holy crusade. Hmm. However, he never actually went on crusade. He just <laughs> said he would over and over again. Oh. Um, uh, he's, he's like, yeah, yeah, I'll do it in the next year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He eventually left that to his son, Richard the, Richard the Lionheart, who couldn't <laughs> wait to go, go on crusade. Yeah, he's like, yeah. He took over. Yeah. Goodbye. And they just see like the cloud of dust and yeah, like yeah. Richard's far off in the distance. Yeah, basically Henry II dies and then there's a there's a, a Richard-shaped cloud just hanging around. Yeah, like cartoon. Yeah. Meanwhile, Henry's son's rebellion, speaking of Richard, ended in 1175, the following year. And again, at the insistence of the Pope, he made peace with Louis VII in 1177 at Vitry-le-Francois, which is where the massacre and the church burning had happened way back in the start of Louis's reign. I don't know whether that was symbolic or not. <laughs> like Louis had chosen this place because it represented like penitence. I don't know. Yeah. And also Louis himself had gone on crusade because of what happened at Vitry. So, you know. True. Full circle moment, maybe. At least Louis was a bigger man in that aspect of actually going on the crusade. Actually going on the crusade, even though it horribly failed, but you know. I know, but at least he actually attempted it while Henry's just like, yeah, I'll do it next year. You miss all the shots you don't make. <laughs> it's like a New Year's resolution he was doing. You, ne- you always end up failing that. Yeah. Then we get to 1179, and young Philip Augustus has reached majority at the grand old age of 14. And he was Ooh. crowned junior king at Reims. So while he is young, there will be no regency next episode. He will be old enough. Mm. Um, and it's not a moment too soon because Louis VII, nearing the age of 60, could sadly not attend his son's coronation as he was suffering from paralysis and couldn't rise from his bed. So Louis mm. remained in this state for about another year, dying on the 18th of September, 1180, in Paris. 
and humble in death as he was in life. He was buried not in the splendid Basilica of Saint-Denis, but in the humble Cistercian monastery of Notre-Dame de Barbeau. So are you going to say he was going to be buried where that town had been burnt down? No, well, that would have been a bit weird. <laughs> yeah, but, um, yeah. I think the people would have like thrown, thrown stuff at his grave. But yeah, yeah, he was buried in a Cistercian monastery because he'd been a big um, supporter of the Cistercian order. Yeah. But his remains would actually be transferred to Saint-Denis in the 19th century. Because, you know, I guess they just thought it was Everyone neater. Everyone was. Yeah. Easier not having to try and get around to exactly. all these places, just one spot. Yeah. And how old was he? He was 60, 61-ish. So he, what, so he died before Eleanor? Yep. Way before Eleanor, yeah. Damn, she's just outliving everyone. She lives another 24 years. Oh. Yeah. So thus we enter the reign of Philip II of France, and that is the life of Louis VII. Hmm. Hmm. Now it's the all-important task. Let's get into Enchanté. Enchanté. So we'll start off with the official portrait Hmm. by Henri de Caen. What do you think of this portrait, Eliza? It's like the clothing seems to be slightly different. Mm -hmm. It's still the robe and the red, but the positioning of it. He's got a nice crown on. He just looks super French. That beard is luscious, though. Oh, yeah, it's luscious beard. He looks a bit sassy. He's got his hand on his hip. Yeah, I know. That's what I was thinking. He's like, hmm, got the hand on the hip. He's absolutely not at all how, I, how I've imagined sassy. him. Sassy. From how he's been described. <laughs> I know. Um, I, I guess he's a bit sassy with all the Thomas Beckett stuff. He was a bit cheeky there. Um, yeah, he was like, hmm. <laughs> but, yeah, not, not, No. I'm doubting whether this artist uh, knew anything about Louis VII, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah. Even though his eyes weirdly follow you around the room. Well, I think that happens when um, someone's looking directly at the... Yeah. Out. Very Mona Lisa. So that's the portrait. It's pretty good. He's he's, he's like, you know, got attractive, regular features and um, got lovely, luscious locks. Luscious beard. Lovely red robe. So the next image, a bit more, mm-hmm. bit more saintly. This is him going on crusade. It feels like it's a bit more trying to like the clothing. Mm. And this is by more. Emile Signol. This, this, this one. Oh, it does the the banner. The yeah, flag. the banner is the oriflamme, which is yeah. which he raises as he goes on crusade, which his father mm. was the first one to raise. Are you impressed I remembered that or noticed I that? I am very impressed you remember the Oriflamme, the streaming red banner. And he's wearing a f- sort of fleur-de-lis tunic. Oh, and he's got fully, an like, armour. Like, got full armour. Well, he's about to go on crusade. He better wear, better wear True. Armor. He better, yeah, you'd hope. He's got a sword. Oh, I like this kingly image much better. Yeah, a bit more of a saintly depiction. It's more crusader. It reminds me a lot of the portraits that um, Spanish Arpoda has for all of the Visigothic kings. They're kind of these more mm. full body ones. Um, yeah. And I'm always jealous of how much better their portraits look than ours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's him. Uh, third mm. image, go, moving moving along in his yeah. life, is him okay. reaching the city of Antioch and he's being greeted by Raymond. Is there? Headless per oh no, it's a horse. I thought it was a headless, fat, headless person in the background. Then I realized it was just this royal <laughs> horse. I don't know. But anyway, he's arriving like in the, the splendid city of Antioch with all of his 
people, mm. I guess. And um, mm. yeah, I think soldiers. someone's holding his horse in the background. I think that's what it is because yeah, I know. But like the horse shape, I thought it was like <laughs> it looks like a, a someone with their hand, like just the white bit makes it look like a hand unless you mm. zoom in. So I was like, is that a beheaded person? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting that this uh, this depiction has survived because uh, we know that yeah. he and Raymond did not get along. <laughs> Because Raymond <laughs> was rumoured to be sleeping with his wife, his Eleanor, wife. who was... His cousin. <laughs> his niece. Oh, niece. Even worse. Right, not cousin. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, it is. Although they were quite close in age, so they may as well have been cousins, but still icky. Yeah. Then we come to a depiction of Louis once again in his fleur de lis mm. decked out. This time he is, he's greeting mm. some clerics and like ensuring them protection, mm. that sort of thing. Not sure if this is like when the when the Pope comes or when Beckett comes, but yeah. he's basically sheltering, yeah. helping, protecting these clerics. Yeah. yeah. And the final image, and the, these both these last are both from the Grand Chronicle of France, as you can see from the similar style. Oh yeah. Is Louis and Adela praying before an altar, and and he's holding what he's Mary holding, is it meant to be. I think that might be little Philip. I think that's who that's meant to be. <laughs> oh my god, that is the best of They're ever offering made. up Philip as to, for Jesus to, to bless. Oh no, I was thinking more like offering up, like being like sacrifice. <laughs> that's what it looks like. It does look and very Jesus silly. Like, well, Jesus is like, I'm hungry. It does look very silly. It's cannibal um, Jesus. Yeah, so so those are the images of Louis the Seventh, or at least the ones that I look, thought that looked the most interesting slash ridiculous. Sorry, I just can't stop laughing at that He's so funny. He's so little. He's like in his, the palm of his hand. He's holding it like you know a statue. It's just medieval people could not draw babies at all. I know they, just... they couldn't do body. Um, they were like they were like priests who'd like never seen a baby. That's who's that's who's true. Painting this they image. basically were. Yeah, they're like this is what I imagine a baby looks like, and this is how I imagine you hold a baby. And when I hold my baby like that, it will automatically start praying. So Louis the Seventh, uh, he's also called Louis the Younger or Louis the Young, um, because he became king quite young and. He was considered yeah. oh. the younger of his father, Louis VI. So basically Louis Jr. is what he was nicknamed <laughs> because everyone still remembered LJ. Louis VI and how much better he was. <laughs> uh, LJ. He was also, the various chroniclers have called him like the peaceful king. You know, that's he's <laughs> the peaceful Louis. That's how he's known because he was always, <laughs> you know, every chance he could get for peace. He, he Crusades took. and peaceful. <laughs> Post-Crusade, I guess. This is, like, later in life. He's called the Peaceful yeah. King. So that's Entrante. What are we thinking, score-wise? I'm liking seeing, a, like, the battle armour depictions. I've missed that. Uh, it's always nice that a king went Louis, on the Crusade, Louis the Sixth had a bit of battle depictions, too. Yeah, I know, but something about Louis Seventh, I just like saying a bit more maybe it's just because i'm thinking crusades in my head so it automatically just makes it louis, better. louis the sixth was very well-rounded i think with his images so he got like True. an eight because we we really liked how well-rounded yeah. it was um louis the seventh i think it's also fairly well-rounded um, i'd say it's yeah yeah maybe not 
as much. Yeah. But it's like that is a good portrait though. <laughs> the the first is. portrait. I like, like the second one more. I I'd want this guy to be my king if I just saw it. Like just purely visual. That's that's the one. So, yeah. Because yeah. he looks really sassy. He looks like he could get stuff done. Obviously we know that's not the case. But the Enchante round is about mm. just shallowness. Definitely getting a real <laughs> rounded like depiction of him being like, you know, holy and forgiving, but then also and like praying, but then also war warrior. What do you think of the epithet though? The peaceful. No, well, the young, the the young, the young or the younger is is usually the one he's given. Bit dull. Yeah, a bit dull. Not very descriptive. It's just like, well, yeah, obviously he was, but he's not young. He's got, old because he's dead. Yeah. <laughs> well, I feel like they should mention more about Crusader Crusades or something. I know they failed, but come Louis on. the Crusader. He's the first king to lead the Crusades. I don't know. When Louis gets back from Crusade, he kind of just wants everyone to forget about it <laughs> that he ever did that yeah. uh, understandable though he basically lost vibe. everyone yeah and yeah. his like marriage broke down because of that yeah yeah a lot it just generally wasn't great so what are we thinking i think uh above the five thinking like six or seven okay you're being more generous than i'm thinking why what are you thinking i just think there's no there's no like i i mm. want more like iconography and like more like True. iconic things that that come from his reign. Oh, I guess he gets a golden rose. That's a that's a thing. Um, mm. But you know, it's I think not. He's the third person to get one ever. Yeah, he's. The oh, third. Well, that's that's pretty good. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm thinking more like a five or six, to be honest. Okay, I'm thinking maybe six. Like six. I'll be nice. Actually, maybe I feel so. You know what? I'm going to go down to five. Actually, five point five. I'm going to do five point five. Actually. I'm thinking 5.5 as well. I think it like just nudges above five, but like doesn't. When I actually think about it, focus, and I'm like, okay, it takes. Like comparing him to others, it's like, yeah, yeah. it's good. It's not great. It's not, mm, yeah. Yeah. All right, so that's an 11 for Enchante. Not shabby. Moving on to On Guard. On Guard. So, Louis the Seventh. Dear, dear Louis. Um, he's often gone, <laughs> gone down in history as pathetic and weak. Complete pushover, basically. Mm. That's certainly how Eleanor of Aquitaine would have liked him to be seen. <laughs> but uh, this view should be seen with a huge grain of salt because, A, it's largely informed by English bias, at least in the English-speaking mm. world, and, B, yeah. it it really ignores the second half of his reign, which is mm, pretty much yeah, all, all of what we've talked about um, in the biography sure. because we did the first half in Eleanor's episode. Also, like, fictional betrayals of him never do him much uh, good sure. either. Yeah. He's always... Because he's always in fiction next to Eleanor. <laughs> um, mm. There's n- other times in his life that are never really told in fiction. But remember, he does win his first war against Tybalt the Great in Champagne. Mm. You know, even if it leads to the massacre at Vitry, it's, you know, he still wins the war. Mm. <laughs> it's good for on guard. True. And what's a war without some bloodshed? That being said, the massacre at Vitry leads to the disastrous Second Crusade. And the crusade itself is a big obvious point against Louis VII, even, even before getting to the Angevin Empire stuff. He does 
an okay job at maintaining the discipline of his armies during the crusade like we yeah. had him like harshly punishing people who like burn peasants houses and stuff like that but strategically he's just not very competent he kept going places yeah. just because he wanted to visit holy sites not because it was strategically <laughs> beneficial he tr- he tries to take damascus at one point even though a, he can't take Damascus. He didn't need to. And B, he didn't need to. And C, he just pissed off the people of Damascus who had recently signed a treaty with the Kingdom of Jerusalem. So he was yeah, attacking the wrong Muslims. Basically got Raymond killed. And then after that, yeah, he did get Raymond killed because he and Eleanor just left the Holy Land, left Raymond vulnerable, get killed by the Turks. Although Louis didn't like Raymond, so maybe that's a tick in the wind column for him. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> so the failure of the second crusade of course means the continued decline of the crusader states in the holy land mm. which is what they went there to protect and did a terrible job at that's why there had to be more crusades yeah so by the time of louis death the principality of antioch has been lost to the turks and meanwhile the kingdom of jerusalem isn't doing too hot either the holy city mm. gets taken by saladin in 1187 mm. So seven years after Louis' death, yeah. despite the best efforts of Orlando Bloom, <laughs> that's a Kingdom of Heaven reference because Orlando Bloom, the plays uh, Balain Ibelin, who's like the guy defending <laughs> Jerusalem. Anyway, we'll get more into that next episode. We'll get more into Saladin and all that jazz, um, or or should I say, next two episodes because. Philip Augustus is definitely getting a two-parter. Um, so look forward to that. So we'll get into the good aspects of Louis' character in Voulez-Vous, because there are indeed good aspects. But it's definitely yeah. true that for Ongard, Louis left a lot to be desired when it came to political yeah. savvy or military ability. Oh, he did defend Toulouse. I like. I mean, Toulouse, Toulouse didn't get lost. Yeah. But that's a small victory against the giant defeat of basically... Losing Aquitaine, well, I think, was the was the biggest part. Well, I thought of you were going to say Second Crusade, yeah. So divorcing Eleanor may have made sense, considering they clearly weren't going to have a son. But simply just allowing her to go free was like a yeah. completely boneheaded move politically. Um, yeah. Again, Louis being too trusting, and too nice. Once she had married Henry the Second, Louis was basically just like, "You didn't ask me permission." Oh God. But there was nothing he could do about it. Yeah, too late now. However, if you discount the whole Angevin Empire thing, which was entirely the result of this divorce, um, Louis VII did very well at continuing Louis VI's good work within the royal domain, increasing his royal authority, and he seems to have been well-liked by both his subjects and other rulers. That's good. So that's good. Louis managed to strike a good balance between supporting the rights and prerogatives of the church, uh, to the extent that one bishop called Louis his, quote, defender and liberator. Um, But he didn't let it get out of hand. He didn't give them everything they wanted. Um, Especially later in life, there were moments where he put his foot down and said things like, no, I'm still the king. I still have to approve church stuff that happens in my lands. Yeah. No going over my head. Yeah. So... Louis basically ended up using his good relationship with the church to have sort of clerical agents throughout the kingdom. So he'd build good relationships mm. with the people, then he'd assign them bishoprics in like his vassals' mm. realms, and they could keep sort an of, eye on things. Yeah, they could spy, keep an eye on things. Report. 
undermine local rulers, spread the king's authority a bit. Yeah. Do a little bit of spying. And uh, the amount of church stability in France is in stark contrast to the chaos that is happening with Beckett in England, with Barbarossa (laughs) in Germany, with the anti-popes and... The popular revolts in Italy. Currently, that's like the one place the Pope's like, okay, I don't need to worry about France. Mm. In terms of them being like, exactly you know, against me. Still a go-to place for Popes to flee to exile because they know it's going to be safe yeah. for them. So Louis, of course, uh, as we said, was known for his pliant and trusting nature. Um, mm. So once his rival, Tybalt of Champagne, found him sleeping on wooden floorboards guarded by only two knights... Um, and he he uh, he reproached him for being so reckless with his safety. Like I could have just come here and stabbed you. What are you doing? <laughs> um, he was like, "Yeah, but I knew you wouldn't." Yeah, that's exactly what Louis says. Louis responded uh, rather naively that he had no fear because nobody bore him any ill will. Oh, <laughs> like a little innocent naive lamb. Bless his soul. So you're the king. Pete, you're automatic. Okay, you're the king. You're automatically going to have people with ill will towards you. Even if you were a saint, people are still going to hate you. Exactly. So you're the king. We, we also saw this last episode where he um, just went into Constantinople, just blindly trusting that the emperor would, was going to treat him well. Truthful. Which, which is, yeah, to his credit, um, his trusting nature never actually put Louis in real danger. Um, yeah. So he was usually right about who to trust, but it, it it did mean he was very easily suggestible. He basically like did yeah. whatever the the last person told him to do. Whispered. Yeah, he allowed others to influence him too much. So he had no consistent political policy of his own, the way that Louis the yeah. Sixth had. Louis the Sixth had been very mm. definite about what he wanted, and yeah, we saw this with Eleanor being able to like pull his strings. And, and everything. And mm. that sort of continues with various other figures throughout his um, Louis' reign. Louis also made some rather dunderheaded moves when it came to planning his succession um, until he finally okay. got a son and it was a it was a definite yeah. it was just going to be the son. So had Louis, if Louis had died in the 1150s, so before Philip yeah. was born, there would have been yeah. a giant civil war <laughs> because... Yeah. Uh, there was Henry of Blois would have been fighting for Marie, the eldest daughter. Henry of England would have been fighting for Margaret, his his wife. And yeah. meanwhile, Louis's younger brother, Robert, the Count of Dreux, would have definitely pressed his claim because he was the next male relative and women yeah. can't inherit, etc. Would have been chaos. Would have been chaos. So It's in the, that what-if timeline. It's in that what-if timeline, but it's, it, yeah, it's not a good what-if. But I guess, you know, yeah. shouldn't blame him for something that didn't happen. But equally, yeah. it's poor planning. <laughs> mm. um, so given that his resources were so limited and Louis VII uh, simply didn't have the correct training or temperament to be the king, he actually yeah. didn't do too badly. <laughs> yeah, he could have, like, really screwed everything up, like, really badly, like, lost everything kind of badly. Yeah. Especially for all those, en- like, people surrounding him, like, you know, Kind of enemies on all sides. Hey, he's definitely... i definitely say he's the least competent Capetian we've had so far in terms of, like, yeah. political savvy. He's not, like, do-nothing. He's level. not do-nothing levels, but but in terms of, like, decision-making. <laughs> yeah, he's very... Mm, mm. 
Yeah, which is which is saying a lot because he's compared. I'm, I'm comparing him to Philip the Amorous, who who made some terrible decisions as well that led to him getting <laughs> excommunicated. So Louis wasn't brilliant, but he definitely got the hang of being king. And after a while, he learned how to best use his natural piety and yeah. good relationship with the church to thwart his nemesis, Henry II. And also getting those alliances of people around him, like with getting those alliances. Castile exploiting the infighting between the Plantagenets. That yeah, was good. Yeah, smart. Uh, Becca getting that. Yeah. So Louis the Seventh does leave his domain smaller than Louis yeah. VI left it. But overall, with the exception of the Angevin Empire, like leaving the Angevin yeah. Empire out of it, his authority has still been increasing, as we've steadily yeah. seen yeah, in the rest of the kingdom. Mm. Especially now that he's got the Bois family as his relatives and allies. That's a really mm, good move. Yeah, true. And of course, the Angevin Empire is very fragile, as we'll see yeah. next episode. And it basically, yeah, yeah. It, it buckles under pressure by the time England gets to King John. Um, <laughs> while Meanwhile, the King of France is going to be Philip II at that time. Yeah. And, you know, he... He was better than King John, I'll say that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't think, uh, you know, France eventually being able to get that land back would have been possible without Louis VII creating a stable base. I yeah. think that's that was a, a good thing he did was stability. But now that I've gotten the, all of those, the good things out of the way, <laughs> we have to actually give Louis VII an on-guard score. And for me, it's going to be middling, mm. to be honest. Yeah, 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 I agree. Mm. Five. Yeah, I was kind of thinking five too. Yeah, just around the middle. Because he's not He's not as bad as I thought he was going to be. <laughs> yeah. Before I started the research. Yeah. Because I'd only pretty much known him from his relationship with Eleanor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, he gets better with practice, I guess. Yeah. You'd uh, hope someone After freaking 20 <laughs> years of, of ruling, he finally... Starts <laughs> to make good decisions. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's very it's it's very complicated. But I think five is the highest I would go for that. Yeah. 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 Not not really getting worse, not really getting better. Stable. Yeah. 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 So that is a 10 for on guard. Moving mm-hmm. on to Vulevu. So <laughs> Vulevu. This I, I think Louis is gonna pick up some more points in this round. So Louis, he dressed very simply and humbly. He slept on bare floorboards and he prayed constantly. Um, (laughs) So generally, aside from the odd church burning, which is really only a thing that happens once, he's generally a pretty affable, friendly person. Um, Yeah. Although as a youth, he was a bit of a brat. He would have the occasional outburst. But, but who doesn't when you're youth? You know, yeah, he gets tempered over time, I guess. He was determined at every turn, almost annoyingly, to follow the law <laughs> and lead by example, even if it was yeah. to his own detriment, um, yeah. which is terrible for On Guard, but is great for Vulevu because Vulevu is all about mm. selflessness. So sure at one point, Louis ordered the demolition of his palace at Fontainebleau because it illegally encroached on peasant farmland. So that's nice. Um, in fact, he consistently supported charters uh, that, that, you know, gave the peasants more rights 
and uh, oh, that's good. freed he freed serfs from bondage and granted municipal rights to trade boroughs. So that's good. In one charter, Louis wrote, All men having a common origin were endowed with a kind of natural liberty. It is given to our royal majesty to raise them anew to this liberty. So that's good. That's very good ruling. Mm. He also punished evildoers very harshly, as we saw in the crusade, cutting mm. off hands and feet yeah. of people, harassing the locals. Pious and humble to a degree that made Eleanor's life very, very miserable. <laughs> it was used to being pampered, but it made Louis very popular among the people. So if he just walks, walks amongst them. And when asked if he was envious of all of the splendid finery of Eleanor's court um, in England and Aquitaine after their divorce, he responded <laughs> that, quote, we in France have nothing but bread and wine and gaiety. <laughs> so he's like... It's almost like being like, they're the devil's lair. <laughs> Devil's Court. He's not. Um. He's not anti-fun at all. He's just. Yeah. He's just humble. He's like, anti-lavishness. Yeah, yeah. He's not materialistic. He's, he's not materialistic man. at all. So, with the exception of the early war with Blois and the Crusade, he was always a proponent of peace wherever possible. As I've said, mm. uh, the move to marry Queen Adela was motivated by wanting to make peace with the Blois family, as was the rather selfless move of giving up his daughters to England. We've also got Louis intervening with conflicts between his brothers, who start who obviously don't conflict as much as the Plantagenets are conflicting. <laughs> they do have their little little tiffs here and there. So Yeah. Oh, they're just little tiffs. Yeah. So in eleven sixty one, uh Louis the Seventh's younger brother, so the next youngest brother, um Henry, who um, oh, yeah. becomes the Archbishop of Reims. So, mm-hmm. Louis' brother, mm. now the big archbishop. The one who supported Eleanor. No, he's, this is, this is, uh, this is 10 years later. That, that archbishop's oh, dead. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So, Henry, uh, let, let, let's call him Henry of Rams. So, Henry of Rams had mm-hmm. been previously uh, the Bishop of Beauvais. And apparently, mm-hmm. Bernard of Clairvaux, the, the crusade preaching guy himself, had converted <laughs> young Henry from the life of a reckless narcissistic prince to the life of a humble <laughs> cleric. So he was kind of the opposite Quiet of who? Louis, where like Louis had been expected to become, you know, the, yeah. the uh, priest. Henry hadn't. Yeah. But then their roles yeah. flipped when when Louis became the, the heir to the throne. Mm. And this reflected in the way that Henry bishoped, um, because... He didn't do a very good job at first. He was way less suited to this life than, than Louis had been. So in both Beauvais and Reims, uh, Henry had problems asserting his authority over the townspeople. And in both conflicts, uh, Henry was opposed by the king himself, who sided with the townsfolk and thought Henry was an unworthy priest. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, with the support of the next youngest brother, the accomplished crusader, Count Robert of Dreux, Henry maintained his position. So he stays Archbishop of France. And he did actually, after this sort of wake-up call, he did actually end up benefiting Rams by improving its fortifications and refurbishing its churches. Yeah. And he died peacefully after 14 years as Archbishop. So good things happening here. There, there's a little bit of defiance of Louis's authority, but it never comes to a big open yeah, conflict. Big, yeah. And it's another good example Normal of how siblings. Louis 
was like sticking up for the common people in a way. Yeah. Like rather than siding with his family member, he's siding with the people of the town who are complaining. With that all said, uh, what do we want to give him, Bolivu? I think it's quite good. Yeah, I think it's quite good. Like, he seems like caring for the people. It's not just yeah. like, me, 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 There is the thing of him, like, having a bit of a inconsistent personality and, like, he'll, yeah. he'll go from being, like, kind and everything one minute to being, like, ruthless and, uh, yeah. you know, bratty the next. <laughs> but I think he's more King Tommen than King Joffrey. Yeah. <laughs> She's very King Tommen, now that I think about it. Yeah. And Eleanor is. is Marjorie. I know. Yeah. Oh. Game yeah. of Thrones. Guys, watch Game of Thrones. No, guys, watch House of the Dragon, because it's meant to be really amazing. Um, Does it come out yet? No, it hasn't come out yet, but I've, I've... I've seen the trailers. It looks good. I've seen reviews of the premiere, which was like, it, oh. was, it was premiered to like a select group of reviewers oh. and stuff. And okay. it, I, I'm really excited. It's going to be great. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> we're not talking about the Targaryens yeah. here. We're talking about the Capetians. Um, what do we want to <laughs> give Louis for Vulebu? We're getting into reform territory here because he's doing the charters. He's doing everything his dad did. Um, yeah. He's he's looking out for the common folk. He's mm. continuing to put king or what did kingly we give authority over noble authority. We gave his dad, you gave him a 7.5, I gave him an 8. I don't know if Louis is quite there, because he, do, he does have a few Yeah, I was thinking neg- 7. A couple of negatives. Yeah. 7 would be the it's same as Hugh Capet, interestingly. Hmm. Which I think, yeah, hmm. makes sense. We had Hugh <laughs> Capet throwing his cloak on people, remember? Hmm. Are we happy with that? Yeah, I'm going to stick with 7, yeah. All right. So that is a 7 for Voulez-vous. No, sorry. So that a is seven. A... What do you <laughs> give? So that is a fourteen for Vulivin. <laughs> you gave seven, and I gave zero. <laughs> yeah, I've been like, what the heck? <laughs> sorry, I read two sevens as as a seven. Um, it's an average of seven, to be fair, <laughs> but it is a fourteen for Vulivin. So moving on to Ulala. Yes. <gasps> Ulala. Surprisingly, there's quite a bit here, considering Louis was supposed to be so pious. Yeah, getting married to someone five weeks later. Well, that wasn't his choice, but um, that was un- he was under mm. pressure, and it wouldn't it wasn't considered scandalous at the time, I don't think. Yeah, um, true. So during the crusade, uh, there, there's a story. Here's just a little mm. anecdote for Lola that he was offered a young girl to warm his bed while he was ill. <laughs> To which he responded, quote, I'd rather die chaste than live as an adulterer. <laughs> which is com- which is very different to almost every king that we've, we've met. I know. So like, they will be like, yes, please. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, despite the chronicler's praise of his general character, Louis definitely had that cruel and borderline psycho streak that sometimes manifested <laughs> in violent, unexpected outbursts. Which may have led to the the massacre of Vitry, if he did indeed order that, which is yeah. unclear. But it happened under his watch, so we can count that scandal as his. Okay. Um, and as a refresh from last episode, we we keep re- referencing this, even though it would have been a week ago. Fifteen hundred civilians getting burned to death yeah. in the church. Yeah, a lot. It's pretty bad. Yeah. And then, of course, we've got all the divorce drama with Eleanor whilst on crusade, yeah. um, mm. <laughs> which is quite juicy. 
um, led to a lot of fun little stories that we covered last episode. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, her, him basically dragging her across the Mediterranean to the Pope, yeah. who then proceeded to insist that they had sex. Um, uh, I can imagine him, the Pope, just shutting the door and like, I'm unlocking it and being like, I'm not letting you out till you do it. <laughs> That's pretty much what happened. Um, yeah, just the, the constant drama that was created whenever he had another daughter. Just very juicy. Just something that I would love to see dramatised. Maybe not because of Louis. I don't know. Yeah. Is this more because of people around him? Yeah. Um, And then his life sort of gets, I guess, less scandalous as it goes on. Well, when Um, he, after Ellen, him and Eleanor divorce. Yeah, basically things get a lot more chill after that for Louis. Well, I mean, chill in the sense, in his personal life, I guess. Yeah. Um. Not necessarily his reign, which is a bit chaotic because of the Anjuman Empire. Yeah. So what are we going to give for Ula, Ula La? It's not as much stuff. Two points for burning down a town mm. of people, which contributed to him even going on the Crusades. And then I give another point for dragging Eleanor around. <laughs> Just all of the, the divorce drama. Yeah, well, and plus that. So I guess four points. Which I feel is generous. I love the image of him with with all the when all the Beckett drama is happening. I love the the image of him just like rubbing his hands and like King. <laughs> getting really excited about the scandal. I want to give him a five, which is which is equal to his dad because I think they're about the same level of scandal in in different ways. Mm. Like Louis the Sixth is, is more lusty scandal. Louis the Seventh is more prudish scandal. <laughs> Such a thing. Which I think, you know, he's definitely stirred, con- stirred a, a lot of controversy in his day. So I think five is a, is a good score for me. But you can stick with four. Mm. Yeah, so that right. is a nine for Ulamar. He's not doing too bad. So let's go into Vion Throne. Mm. The Vion Throne. The reign. So he reigned from the death of his father, Louis VI of France, on the 1st of August, 1137. Horse's birthday mm-hmm. slash tomorrow when we're recording this, but of course it'll be yeah. not tomorrow. And, and my brother's birthday. And Eliza's brother, the, the horse's birthday. Because um, your brother's a my horse. My brother, the horse. Decided. Yeah. Yes. He, so he reigned from 1st of August, 1137, to his own death on the 18th of September, 1180. Okay. That is 43 years, one month, and 17 days. Not too shabby. Not too shabby. It's the third longest reign so far, after Philip the First and Charlemagne. Yeah. So he doesn't beat Charlemagne, but he's, you know, done well. Yeah. And that gives him five point four two points towards the Beyond Threat score. Okay. So now let's get into the children. Um, yeah. So unlike Eleanor of Aquitaine, who <laughs> only outlived, uh, who's who only got outlived by two of her children. By two. Louis the Seventh was outlived by all of his recorded children. Oh, all of them. Wow. Yes. Oh, wow. All six. All six, because he didn't live as bloody long as Eleanor did. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so by Eleanor of Aquitaine, he had Mary, Countess of Champagne, and Alix, Countess of Blois, mm-hmm. which we've covered. Then by Constance of Castile, he had Margaret, the Countess of the mm-hmm. Vexan, and Junior King of. Junior Queen of England, because she married mm-hmm. Henry the Young King. 
But then afterwards, when Henry the Young King died, she became the Queen of Hungary. Hmm. She was her second marriage was to King Bela the Third, and hmm. um, apparently at one point uh, Margaret was accused of having an affair uh, with none Ooh. other than William Marshall, um, big figure in English history, English history. Obviously, a spurious claim and would have happened before she moved to Hungary. Yeah, but you know that's fun. That's a fun little story. Then second child by Constance, we have Alice, who was betrothed to Richard the Lionheart. But when the time came to actually marry her, uh, he rejected her because while she was in Henry II of England's custody as the betrothed, uh, Henry II may or may not have had his way with her. Oh. Yes. Oh. Yes. So, bit of a messy situation. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> the, and this is actually a much more likely claim than her sister sleeping with William Marshall, by the way. Um, but whether it was true or not, this rumour led Richard to reject Alice and marry Berengaria of Navarre instead. Mm. So Alice of France ended up marrying Count William IV of Ponthieu, um, a okay. lord in northern France, and had one daughter. Alice was also Countess of the Vexan in her own right, as it passed to her mm. when her sister Margaret went off to Hungary. I don't think she part- she got to pass it on, though. I think it ended up going back to the crown, uh. Then we have Louis's children. Again, two children. So two children per wife um, by Adela of Champagne. So we've got Philip II, Augustus, our next king, who we'll get into in much further detail. And then we've got baby Agnes, the youngest child, (laughs) who, in my opinion, was the most interesting of all the siblings. (laughs) So let's get into Agnes for a moment, because... She's good. So um, at the age of about eight, Agnes was sent to Constantinople to marry Alexios II, the child emperor of the Byzantines. Damn, so so young, how to leave. I think it's very interesting that Louis has married his daughters to Hungary and the Byzantines, which are both places he visited on Crusade. So potentially these are like connections that he's like tapping into later on. Yeah. I like that. Smart. But anyway, Agnes sent to be Empress, aged eight. And yeah, so Alexios II, he was the child emperor until his cousin and regent Andronicus ordered him to be strangled, just casually. Had she reached there by then? Yeah, she'd reached there, but this was like two years later. Oh. <laughs> well, she's in um, ten. Yeah, <laughs> ish. And Andronicus, he was a real piece of work. He took not only the throne, but the empress. The little baby empress. So Andro- Andronicus, not 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 great. Very scandalous. Um, which of course mm. makes his Totalis Rankium episode a very good one that I would recommend. So I won't spoil it. But defiance, <laughs> suffice it. I nearly said defiance it to say. What even is that? But suffice it to say, Andronicus was dead after a couple of years of scandal, and Agnes was <laughs> twice widowed at the age of fourteen. Damn. <laughs> yeah. That's an achievement. Um, and yeah. after this, she got to live very quietly in Constantinople as yeah. a widow. So she didn't marry again? Well, she took a Byzantine general called Theodore Branus as her lover um, a bit later. She eventually had to marry him just for, for you know, honor's sake. But apparently they were, they were happy together. And 
1204, when the French participants of the Fourth Crusade entered Constantinople, perhaps violently, yeah. we'll see, they found that Agnes needed a translator to speak to them because she no longer understood French. Damn. I yeah. suppose she probably hadn't heard French in like decades. No. No, no, no. Not since she was eight. Yeah. Yeah. And she's now in her late 30s at, at that point. Yeah. yeah. So that's Agnes. She's pretty interesting. I'd love yeah. to see another podcast to do an episode on her or something. But for us, we're, we're still on Louis the Seventh. How many children is that? Six. Yes. Six children, which is a V on Throne score of 10.13, uh, which is the exact same as his father, Louis the Sixth. Hmm. Yeah. Good job. Quite ironic, given that Louis the Sixth had was such a lustful king. While Louis VII was so chaste. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But he was oh, just, really. I guess he just had whatever it was. Like, he had, a healthy, he had a healthy child every time. Even though they were all, like, at least five years apart. <laughs> Super sperm. Like, the first time he did it with the woman, it would, it, they would, it, she'd it, fall pregnant. So he really only had sex six times. He only had sex six times. <laughs> And every time it resulted in a baby. <laughs> honestly, Come on, I, can you honestly not? that seems like the most likely explanation. <laughs> Why not? Oh, that's so funny. Okay. <laughs> it's that he probably, you know what he, how he had the rest of his kids after his second one? He probably carried around some of those petals with aphrodisiac that the Pope had thrown on him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's just like, I'll save these for later. Um, I think I'll need them. Maybe that's what the golden rose was for. <laughs> Although I think you'd already have children by that point. But yeah, it, it, like yeah. it's there's like a there's like a mechanism in it that sprays like aphrodisiac, like, aphrodisiac that makes him <laughs> or just like kind of knocks him out, so like puts him in like a trance, so he can oh, yeah. do it. Okay, well, so that is a uh, well. His super sperm uh, paid off quite well because that is a total V on Throne score of 18.19 out of 20, uh, which is 0.78 points higher than Philip I, who was our highest scorer in V on Throne. Hmm. So that means that Louis VII is now a new top scorer in V on Throne. Yay! Uh, Philip Philip was the top scorer for two episodes. (laughs) Um, Let's see how long he'll, Louis will last. Yes, but yeah, Philip's been knocked down to seventh place, which means that Charlemagne, once again surpassed, has dropped to third place. <laughs> but will Louis the Seventh beat Charlemagne in the overall score? Mm. Well, obviously, obviously no. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. But let's tally it up because I think it's it's quite. Yeah. It's diddling. Diddling. That comes in at a very good score of 62.19. Not too shabby. Not too shabby at all. That is uh, two points behind Robert II, which puts him in fourth place overall. Yeah. (laughs) I did not expect that. Yeah. Very weird. I think we were generous because I think he sort of, like, we hated him last episode because he was just a prude. I didn't hate him. I just kind of felt like, oh. 
maybe she my maybe my my little soft spot for him was was already creeping in last episode because I guess I didn't portray him badly. Um, yeah. But yeah, the more I more I read about him, the more I was like, he's just misunderstood because hmm. he has this yeah. reputation for being dull and overly pious and everything but you know that's mostly later historians crapping on him uh contemporaries mostly liked him yeah even the even if he wasn't the best king yeah he wasn't the worst he wasn't the worst so with that said is he fascinating enough entertaining enough majestic and fabulous and irresistible enough to be released from our dungeon to go through to the battle royale championship and to be spared the guillotine this is hard because I have a soft spot for him, but I don't know if I can justify sparing him. Yeah. 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 I just don't think I can give it to him. There's no, I'm thinking I like. It's star power. No, there's no great achievement in his reign. There's no sparkle. Like he seems like a perfectly fine person, apart from the occasional. Yeah, he'd be like good for a friend. Um, but yeah, he's just jet. He's just he's chill. You know when people are like, oh yeah, like he's a nice guy. Like you know, I wouldn't date him, but he's he's just yeah. a nice guy. Like friends, he's, he's like, like that. that. Yeah, yeah, no, I the, the mark of death for men when you go, oh, he's nice. Yeah, it's very much like that. Okay, well, I think I think we've made our decision. Yeah. I'm not I'm not happy about it. I'm sad. Same, but I can't justify it's like, giving, oh, it's... sparing him. It's like putting a dog down. You're like, he's a really nice dog, but he just can't, can't make it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> poor little thing. He's just a donkey. <laughs> he's a donkey. Just such a cute little donkey. A little donkey. Anyway, yeah. it's, it's night night for Louie. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of dogs, here's here's Sling. She's oh no, she's just rolled on her back. She wants a belly rub. <laughs> okay, um, so that Cha-ching. is the end. That is the end of the episode. Next, we have Philip the Second, Philip Augustus, and it, I have definitely decided it's going to be a two-parter because there's just a lot okay. to get into. But we will not be recording that episode for another month. Which gives me plenty of time to research it and gives Eliza plenty of time to forget everything. (laughs) Yes. Um, I don't really know much about him anyway. Because, you know, Richard and John, the English kings, kind of dominate that time period that people know. Well, uh, we'll see how much they dominate. But it's good that you have that foundation knowledge of the English history because it's good to compare against. Once again, um, Patreon shout-outs and stuff will happen um, once we get back. Um, but obviously yeah. we are recording a backlog now, so. Yeah, because Ben's going away to Edinburgh and I'll be spending a, a week in Tokyo. Yokohama. I think I hinted in a previous episode that I was going to go to France, but um, that's not happening anymore, that's sadly. didn't pan out, unfortunately. Financial reasons. Um, yeah. But Eliza maybe and I, one day, though, me and Ben will do an episode. Like our final episode will be in France. Oh, cool. maybe. I think there's definitely going to be have to be like a podcast field trip at some point to France. It's just yes, it's so hard. And we to just get go there. to the places. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and what is like? Yeah, 
Be like, oh my god, we were here, and this is where this happened. Yeah. Oh my god, oh. Blah Blah's buried here. So much Loire Valley stuff. Champagne. Oh my god, we should do like a vlog of our trip there of us just being like, oh my god, this happened here, this battle! Like, <laughs> or like someone died here and everyone like around us like, is just like, what? What? Yeah, exactly. Like, or like they see us like fangirling over like the most random stuff that everyone's like, why are you fangirling over this like pile of rock? I'm like, you don't understand, that was the rock that Philip hit his head on! And meanwhile, French people just don't care about kings in general. <laughs> yeah. The way the English do. Um, yes. That's what we should totally do. Yeah. Um, We're going to do I mean, a vlog when that I, happens. I have it on good authority is that the, the the only people in France who are really into kings are like the crazy Catholics. <laughs> um, so we're just going to look like crazy Catholics, I guess. We'll just have to deal with that. <laughs> so that is bon voyage for both of us, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's going to be au revoir from me. And goodbye from me.